I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. On November 3rd, 1832, the 50-foot Japanese cargo vessel Hojun Maru left Isa Bay bound for Edo, the city now known as Tokyo. Its hold was full of rice and porcelain dishes from the southern end of the Japanese archipelago to be traded for saltfish from the north. One of the youngest members of the Hojin Maru's 14-man crew was a 14-year-old boy named Otokichi, a cook's apprentice. Otokichi and his shipmates couldn't know it, but when they stepped aboard at Isa Bay, they were leaving their homeland forever. The Hojin Maru's fate stemmed from a political decision made 200 years before. In 1637, the shogunate government of Japan had decreed the island nation closed. No one was allowed to enter, and no one was allowed to leave, on pain of death. There was, however, an enforcement problem with the shogunate's decree. The sea was both Japan's main highway system and a vital source of its food. The island nation had a massive fishing and trading fleet, staffed by some of the world's most skilled mariners. What was to stop these mariners from becoming smugglers? So, the government ordered a change in the configuration of all Japanese vessels. All Japanese merchant and fishing ships of seaworthy design, suitable for deep-water navigation, were to be destroyed. Henceforth, all Japanese ships and boats would have open sterns and square, big rudders, well-suited for close-in coastal work and fair weather, but completely unfit for the conditions of the open sea. This worked, but there was an unintended consequence. Actually, there were thousands of unintended consequences, and the Hojin Maru was about to become another one. The thing was, it didn't take much of a gale to strip those big square rudders away from the boats. And if this happened far enough from shore, unless the winds were absolutely perfect, the crew of that boat was as good as dead. Without a means of staying square against the sea, the ship would quickly roll round into the trough of the sea, or broadside to the waves, which would roll it fiercely until the masts either broke loose or were chopped free by the desperate crew. At the mercy of the wind, the helpless ship would then be blown into the stream of the famous Kuroshio Current which, flowing past Japan a few dozen miles offshore, would carry ship and crew inexorably away into the open sea. Quote, Among Japanese mariners, the fear of being thus blown off their coast has been an ever-threatening danger, writes author Charles W. Brooks, and the memory of such time-honored accidents is a common feature in the traditions of every seaport settlement along the eastern coast of Japan. The vast majority of these unfortunate castaways met their deaths in storms on the North Pacific, their ships foundering and sinking hundreds or thousands of miles from land, alone in the open sea. And this, in fact, is what the Hojin Maru's crew members' families assumed had happened to them. They grieved, they carved gravestones, and they chalked up another loss to their ruthless ocean. But if a ship was carrying enough supplies when blown off the coast, enough to keep the crew alive for a year or more, they might just survive the ordeal. 
The Kuroshio Current, after merging into the North Pacific Current, crosses all the way across the Pacific Ocean to within a few hundred miles of the west coast of North America, moving at a rate of up to 10 miles a day. And this seems to have happened with some regularity. Brooks lists some 60 incidents of, quote, junks found on or near the west coast over the years, and that's just the ones we know about. Brooks, who was the Japanese government's longtime commercial agent in San Francisco, believed it happened often enough to infuse West Coast Native American tribes with recognizable elements of Japanese language and culture. Quote, Quite an infusion of Japanese words is found among some of the coast tribes of Oregon and California, he writes, either pure as cheche, milk, or clipped as hayaku, speed, found reduced to hayak, meaning fast, or yaku, Evil genius in Japanese, similarly reduced to yak, devil, by the Indians. Shipwrecked Japanese are invariably enabled to communicate understandingly to the coast Indians, although speaking quite a different language. The story of the Hojin Maru all but proved Brooks' point. By the time the battered derelict was blown ashore in early 1834, near Cape Flattery in what's now Washington State, only three of its crew members still lived. Everyone else had died of scurvy after nearly a year and a half at sea eating nothing but rice. The castaways were found by a party of Maka tribe seal hunters and taken as slaves, nursed back to health and put to work. But one of them, probably the ship's navigator, a 28-year-old man named Iwakichi, was an artist. On a piece of paper, he sketched their ship on a beach surrounded by Native Americans and wrote a message on it. The Indians, fascinated, took the letter, passed it around, and eventually offered it in trade to the Hudson's Bay Company employees at Fort Vancouver. There it fell into the hands of Chief Factor John McLaughlin, the father of Oregon. McLaughlin looked at the kanji characters written on the letter with some astonishment. How, he wondered, could anyone from the Far East have managed to get shipwrecked here at the opposite corner of the earth? He promptly dispatched his stepson, Thomas McKay, to find and ransom the Japanese mariners, and after a few complications, this was done. And that's how the three long-suffering mariners came to live at Fort Vancouver in what was then known as Oregon Territory. Otokichi and his comrades lived in Vancouver for five months, learning English before being sent around the Horn to London. The three of them subsequently sailed to Macau, where an ever-hopeful silk merchant hoped that they might be his ticket to open commercial relations with the still tightly closed Japanese markets. However, when he tried to bring them home to Edo Bay, they were rebuffed with cannon fire. Otokichi doesn't seem to have minded. His services as a translator were already in high demand. He moved to Shanghai, changed his name to John Matthew Otoson, Otosan, if you will, and married a British woman. When offered a chance to return home to Japan in 1854, perhaps still miffed by his earlier attempt to return home, he declined. This story was first published on April 27th of 2014 under the headline, Japanese Shipwrecks on Oregon Coast Likely Predate Columbus. Key sources included works by Cassandra Tate, Charles Wolcott Brooks, and James Gibbs Jr., Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly. 
specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Vaccara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.